Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. Seniors deserve to have a life with respect, dignity, and fulfillment. But as we transition into elderhood, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here are Phyllis and Rubina. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, where we represent informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. Our show, which began in September 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. As with Seniors Straight Talk, all of our episodes of the previous show are archived on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and can be downloaded on popular podcast platforms. Please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. So here we are again, Rubina. How are you doing? Hello, Phyllis. I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing great, and this is the first time we're um, we're doing this uh, video um, recording, and so um, we shall see um, how everybody um, responds now seeing our faces. They only hear our voices, and now it's a whole different story. And remember in the past episodes, you said, you know, wish we could see each other. <laughs> you know, wish we could see each other's reactions and I, your wish has come true. Oh my gosh, you have to be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Isn't that what they say? Yeah. Here we careful. are. You're on the East Coast, I'm on the West Coast, and here we are talking to each other through technology. It's pretty fantastic. And we yes. have a fantastic guest and um, talking about seeing people. I hope I don't embarrass him, but he's quite a handsome man. And so I hope I don't get too flustered uh, <laughs> uh, during, this com- you know, during this conversation. But let me introduce uh, Dr. Kazi, who's been uh, practicing neurology in the greater Pomona Valley area in California and uh, the Inland Empire area over the last 10 years. He's recently been cross-covering at St. Jude Hospital in Fullerton, California, with outpatient offices in Pomona and Upland, California. And he's been instrumental in developing the stroke programs in his affiliated hospitals and served as chair of the Neuroscience Committee at San Antonio Hospital from 2011 through 2014. Dr. Kazi is currently president of a medical network devoted to service known as MINDS, a charitable organization with focus on specialty healthcare services to underserved families. He's also served as the president of the American Muslim Health Professionals Association, uh, was architect of their 2009 health policy initiative, as well as president of a national public health group. His research interests involved concepts in neuroethics. Uh, His latest research has included reviewing neuroscientific advances in the field of consciousness, metaphysics of soul, and the philosophy of mind. He serves as a board member for the Islam and Medicine Initiative Affiliate with University of Chicago. And it goes on and on and on. His work has been featured in the LA Times, on CNN, uh, NPR, Voice of America, and PBS. And he has received the honor of being listed amongst the best doctors in the Inland Empire in late 2000s, and also received a Values in Justice Award by St. Jude Medical Center in 2016. Oh my goodness gracious, I have to take a real deep breath after reading all of that. Welcome. We're so thrilled for you to be here. And what, what accomplishments. I mean, they're just terrific. Um, as a speech pathologist, I have an affinity for some of your work. I've, I've worked with a lot of neurologically impaired adults, uh, people who have had strokes. And so when you and I had a conversation, I, you know, I felt a real connection around um, you know, some of these issues and, and your research. So, you know, we talked about brain health and, you know, your, your bio is so um, academically focused, but how would you make it, um, let's say, real for our listeners, you know, understandable for the lay person, um, you know, about brain health? Well, first of all, thank, thanks for having me. 
Uh, so it's a real pleasure uh, to be able to come and, and, and engage in these discussions, such as your own background in, in, in the speech. Uh, you and I understand how powerful language is as a, as a, as a means and as a forum. So that informs so much of our consciousness and does the brain health uh, as we come to know it. So the way I look at brain health uh, is basically our ability to carry on uh, without interruption, a lot of our faculties. And our faculties include you know, both our mental processing, you know, we can simply refer to it as memory uh, and cognition, for example, um, but also your, your, our, our ability to, to perform, to what we call perceive and perform and, or execute in and around us the tasks where we're so driven to do. Uh, and I would add a third component, which is our emotionality. Uh, our emotional well-being also emanates from, from, uh, from our neuropsychological processes. And therefore, those are components of, 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 of brain health that we all, I'm sure, care to maintain and wish that these continue to function optimally uh, for years to come for us. You know, you mentioned the word cognition. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what that word actually means for people who don't know and executive function? Because even in our uh, last interview with Dr. Power, he talked about executive function, and that's referred to a lot in dementia and as people lose some of their cognitive abilities. So would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and so cognition, you know, for, for our field, uh, in, in terms of the academic description of, of um, or clinical description of cognition. You know, cognition can be broken down into multiple components. We often look at it as, you know, four or five or six components. But one of the key issues in cognition is memory itself. Uh, and memory is a key driver of our cognitive processes. But another component of our cognition is executive function, which is performance-based, meaning the tasks that you were once were able to perform uh, adequately and without, without difficulty, if one has challenges in doing those kind of routine things, uh, then naturally there's a uh, there's an impairment in one's uh, executive uh, function, or you call it executive dysfunction. And that can be part of dementia, that could also uh, be a result of other processes in the brain that are impaired, such as damage that can come from stroke or other key uh, key injuries. So these, these cognition is a very broad term. We generally like to think of it as memory. But it's more than memory. It can also be perception. Um, it, uh, you know, it, 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 like I said, it can be executive dysfunction, executive function itself. Uh, some of it is, like I said, performance-based. So Re it is broad. Well, I'm sorry not to interrupt you, but like reasoning and planning yeah. and decision-making, would that fall under that category? Absolutely. So your judgment, reasoning and judgment, you know, falls into that. Uh, and those things can be impaired both in brain injury uh, from different mechanisms, but also, uh, also clearly in, in dementia. Mm -hmm. So there are different kinds of, um, well, dementia is a, a, a really symptoms as opposed to Alzheimer's, which is a disease. Um, but there are different um, um, conditions that lead to dementia. Um, many of our listeners or viewers, uh, you know, may have heard the term Lewy body dementia, or frontal temporal dementia. And there's even dementia associated with Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's mm -hmm. disease is not merely tremors. Uh, there are different things that go along with that. So do you want to talk about that a little bit or explain for people what the differences might be uh, in those yeah. different conditions? I mean, in, in a number of conditions that we consider uh, as neurodegenerative conditions, those include Parkinson's and those include, you know, ALS, which is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, there is uh, impact on the brain, uh, you know, because a lot of those conditions like Parkinson's uh, are considered motor diseases, uh, you know, involving your motor function. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, as, as these conditions advance, you do have an impact on the brain or like, a, like, like the word we use, neurodegeneration, which is much, much more widespread than just your motor, uh, motor elements. And as a result of that degeneration, uh, one has decline in performance and cognition. And specifically, we know, we understand, you know, even dementias or specifically Alzheimer's disease as something that principally affects memory. 
and starts right. with short-term memory dysfunction. Uh, and, and it's, you know, to be honest with you, it's really, this is, you know, even though we, we look at it in terms of broad diagnoses, and our goal is to always kind of place a diagnosis. In other words, you know, put, put a box around a label, sort of a label on a condition that's our utmost goal. But at the end of the day, I have to say, you know, this, this is, these are really fearful symptoms for people. Mm. Um, and, I, and I've seen them seen first, firsthand. I mean, I guess the whole process of aging can be fearful, right? We just, the body changes, your faculties and capacities, capacities change, and right. we just don't know what to expect next. But, um, but certainly I can tell you that, you know, folks that start having memory issues become extremely concerned and fearful because most of them have seen somebody in the family parents or grandparents or, or, or somebody within the family unit, uh, folks with Alzheimer's or with other forms of dementia, so they've taken care of them and they've seen that decline. And uh, so those perceptions are there. The, the, this, is white, this is something which is widespread. So yeah, most, as, you, as you know, most folks will have some encounter with that. Um, and we're, we're talking about statistically in this country. Um, and I, I, would, I would expect globally as well. Mm. Um, but that's, you know, that's, the, that's a human... Uh, the human element of that, right? I mean, I, I look at it as, as a neurologist. I'm always, you know, I'm intrigued by the by the by these by, by the phenomena, and I'm, my goal is to really get to a diagnosis, um, which sometimes is not easy to get to. By the way, I mean, we do, 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 we do not always have a diagnosis, mm-hmm. but and as just a people to people, as somebody making a people to people connection, um, I have seen a tremendous amount of fear, but I've also seen tremendous amount of resilience mm-hmm. in how families and Patients who understand that they are going to go through a decline in their in their cognition and in their faculties, how they prepare themselves, mm. and and that's been incredible to see and and, and witness. I, I just want to make a comment. Um, since you said people have experienced this in their lives, or you know, know a parent or a grandparent, so of course, as a speech pathologist, I've worked with many people who have Parkinson's and seen that decline, but. Um, my journey in this entire space actually started with my grandmother when I was 15 years old, and she had fallen, broken her hip, but then had Parkinson's, and my mother used to travel to help take care of her, and then when that wasn't really working for the family anymore, um, my grandmother moved into a nursing home a few blocks from where we lived, and I helped care for her for a period of time. And so that's how I actually even got into this whole nursing home space. So it's interesting that we're talking about Parkinson's and you said how many people have experienced that. And this is, you know, from many, many years ago. Rubina, um, you know, have you experienced people who have had Parkinson's or, or well, I, I know your mom, we've talked about it many times, is experiencing a little cognitive decline and memory loss. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Dr. Kazi, you were just mentioning the fear factor, and that's very, very real. And, uh, and as we move forward in this conversation, I want to talk a little bit more about it and what seniors can do. Um, but I do want to answer Phyllis's question. Uh, as most of our listeners know that my parents live in Canada, both 92 years old. I lost my father earlier this year. But in the last couple of years, they've had this decline. Uh, um, and Phyllis has been very supportive in walking me through. In this conversation, I'm the layperson. I'm, I'm the people that you meet in your office that, that get scared. And uh, it's... Uh, it's frightening. I can't imagine what it would be like for the individual, but for the family member who's caring for them, it uh, it really is uh, is frightening. And we went through the stages with my with my dad, where he was in independent living, and he went for a walk. He couldn't find his way home, mm. and then he started to lose temper you know, was not patient with others uh, to the point where the people at independent living, they said, you know, we can't address his needs anymore. So I had to find uh, a nursing home for him. Uh, And now my mom is, she's also 92 um, on dialysis. And, um, you know, we're going through interesting adventures, uh, interesting adventures. And uh, we always 
I think for Phyllis and for this, our whole experience of the podcast and the radio show and this conversation is, is that I'm the real time uh, poster child, child of what yes. family goes through. I, you know, I, call, I call Rubina the poster child, right? Absolutely. You know, and uh, right now my mom is 92 on dialysis. And just last Thursday, I got a call. She's just been shifted from assist. Was she, where do I begin? Three days after dad's funeral, my mom fell and broke her hip. Mm. So I was back in Canada again. This is beginning of March. I came back waiting for her to get a bed in, uh, in rehab. And in the meantime, we went into this COVID lockdown. So she's been in rehab and now in nursing home. And I haven't been able to see her until about six weeks ago when I finally got the iPad set up and now I talk to her FaceTime. So it's this, I am just so, so grateful to the uh, technology. But what happened last Thursday, she was waiting for her ride and she's in a wheelchair and she just went on an adventure down the, <laughs> down the hospital corridors. Sorry to hear that. And then I got a telephone call and I had to, you know, find somebody local who could be with her uh, at that time. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, thank you. I'm here to learn from you and uh, what to do, how to care. That's where my interest is uh, in this conversation. What can I do for myself? Yeah, and I'll just say, you know, my my own grandfather by his mid-70s had an onset of Clearly, you know, dementia That's symptoms, early. and 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 by the by the late seventies, he he was, I mean, he passed away, but um, he was reaching end stage in terms of his memory function. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even my father, you know, he's getting close to seventies, has has some memory issues. You know, what there's, you know, we don't really obviously. This is a oh, let's just talk about Alzheimer's as a prototype of of a kind of dementia that principally involves memory loss mm-hmm. and memory decline. And it, it is it is a process, meaning it's not usually that rapid. Usually, it take it can take five, anywhere from five years to twenty years mm-hmm. to really get to uh, go through these different stages or get to end stage of the condition uh, where you lose many faculties. And one of the things is that you know what what concerns most people as they you know realize very quickly is that there really is no cure for it. I mean, the the medications we have for this are largely symptomatic management, meaning we can give you a little bit of time and slow down your decline. Uh, but beyond that, we really aren't going to be able to turn this around. And, and on the other hand, you know, yeah, there's an age-related component to this. But, you know, we, we have seen, I have seen 92 years old with really, really sharp minds. And they have no, you know, no such decline. So even though it has an age prevalence, it still is a pathology, meaning it still is a disease process. Mm-hmm. And disease processes, you know, afflicts people selectively. It just this is this is one of those, you know, epi- epidemiologically you know widespread conditions uh, that that just we, we all know too well. Um, so you know, a lot of it we realize now has we have the capacity to do prevention for, uh, and you might have spoken to your earlier guests who have commented on this, but uh, there are ways to there are ways to implement prevention programs for those uh, like Rubina yourself. If you you know there's. There's a, there's a familial risk, you know, not necessarily genetic because genetics mean you really have to pass on a gene. Uh, to, there's, it's not necessarily genetic in that sense, but there's definitely familial clustering or familial, you know, risk. Um, but there's, there's things one can do. There was once a debate, and before I get into preventive um, mm-hmm. methods, but there, there's been sort of a social debate about whether we should know um, what our risk is. Right. And, uh, you know, as you know, like you, so I, and I actually advise my patients that if they, if they wish for, for a little bit of small amount of money, they can actually go to one of these websites like 23andMe, get a swab mm-hmm. test, and, and get a genetic uh, breakdown. Um, and in the genetic analysis, they check for uh, a specific uh, protein-related gene called EPOE4. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, you know, this is number one, we have to, to make sure that people understand that. Uh, having that gene in your in your genetic makeup, um, it's not it's not um, it's not diagnostic. It's not guaranteeing you that you'll have a disease, and it's not a, it's not a diagnostic value in any sense. But it is predictive, meaning 
if you have, for example, two of those alleles, is what we call them, if you have two of those genes, then you may have 12-fold the risk of developing, you know, dementia later, but it doesn't mean that you will or, or, or doesn't even mean you live long enough to develop it. You, you see what wow. I mean? So, so there's no guarantees in life as such, but we don't have, we are developing biomarkers to be better able to diagnose or predict. Um, and that's all in the works. There's been some exciting, exciting development. There's also been some, a lot of studies going on to be, that could be curative, but they, they will all start at the most earlier stages of the condition for research purposes. I, I just wanted to ask a question about that actually, because um, I, I guess there are people who, who don't want to have that test to know whether or not they have that marker because is it predictive? I'm relating um, on a personal level because like um, my father was diabetic and um, I, I'm predisposed to it because I, I was diabetic in both pregnancies. So getting back to a conversation about what you can do to help yourself, um, brain health, it's just like I actually pay attention um, sometimes, some days better than others, <laughs> but, you know, to what I'm eating and to my, uh, you know, and to my weight because I am aware of the fact that, the, you know, I have a predisposition to it genetically. So, um, or by by, uh, you know, you know, through my family. So maybe you want to take this time to talk about some of the things that people could do, um, either preventatively or what kind of lifestyle things they can do to, you know, help shore up their, um, their mental capacities. Sure, and, 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 and to, to, to start that comment, I would say I had a patient just yesterday and, and she came in and we were talking and then she had tears in her eyes and she, she was suggesting that, this country has written people like me off. And this is in the context of a conversation we're having on COVID because just within the last few days, there's been some comments from what the president's advisors and others saying, well, you know, COVID's going to hit uh, or, or, you know, there'll be some COVID related deaths are inevitable because a lot of folks have pre-existing conditions and chronic conditions and, you know, it's going to hit them hard and, and the elderly. So she felt really, you know, really emotionally disturbed by, by that. So what I would say that, you know, in, in context of what we're discussing, nobody's written off, you know, so we, as far as the, the, these conditions go, chronic conditions or neurodegenerative condition, you know, there are guidelines available now and much written about that these are preventable conditions. Even, by the way, cancer is considered preventable. And physical conditioning or physical exercises always going to be one of the top tiered recommendations by all these agencies and bodies that research this and, pro and promote these reports. So, you know, for same thing goes for brain conditioning. We are we're realizing now that diabetes, hypertension, you know, high cholesterol, these things have impact on the brain in terms of adding to, your, to one's risk factors for future dementia as well. I mean, we didn't understand those connections before, but I think that there's not sufficient research to suggest that there's a connection from chronic systemic conditions into informing your 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 brain brain you know impairments, so that's something we have to keep in mind. So I think I think what I would say to this is that look, our, just like we focus on physical conditioning, uh, I think brain requires the same level of conditioning, and part of brain's brain health is also physical exercise. Meaning you know if you do take that time of, of doing the thirty minutes of walk brisk walk perhaps, and we do that um, at least three times a week. It goes a long way because people generally don't even have time to do that, right? But it does. If, even if you can get a lot of people to do that, it, it's it's going to go a long way. Uh, any any bit helps. The more one can do, the better it is uh, in terms of physical exercise. Uh, so I think that's that's always going to be number one for both cancer and dementia prevention. Uh, but then also controlling one's risk factors like diabetes, hypertension. If we control them, we we know that we can prevent strokes. What could preventing strokes? We know that. Multiple strokes can lead to a little bit faster onset of dementia. Sometimes it's called vascular dementia, but it just impairs your cognition altogether. So I think that's, um, that's another way to keep in mind that we do not add insult to injury. Like we don't bring, well, we don't bring on additional further damage or insults such as strokes. And the third thing I would mention is, you know, the whole goal is to increase our reserve, functional reserve of the brain. And the way that's most, and most recent research keeps emphasizing, that, emphasizing on that is, is our brain exercises, where there's a logic book. I, I even got myself a, a logic book with, with questions that were half a paragraph. 
you know, just one of your questions. I just, I wanted to check it out. It was, wasn't that easy to do. It took some time. Uh, but there, there are people who are extremely good at Sudoku and, and crossword puzzles. Right. I, I just met an 82-year-old gentleman today. That's his hobby. He does great. He has memory issues, but he's really good at that. So his functional reserve is going to be much more advanced than somebody who has not had a chance to really keep up and do such brain exercises. And, and, and the latest thing to add to that is video games, right? I mean, there's a whole series of literature coming out on video games because it yeah. helps eye, hand-eye coordination. You know, it helps, you know, your, your, uh, your task uh, tracking skills. So those are part of cognition. So I, I think there's video games are, are, are a welcome opportunity, you know. So, uh, so I would say that, you know, just the whole idea is to increase our functional reserves uh, the more you brain is, think of brain as a muscle, although it's, it has no muscle in it, but let's think of it as a muscle. The more we work it, the more we build it, or we preserve it. We call it plasticity in our language. And then, you know, I can always go into some natural supplements that can help people, you know, some basic elements of natural supplements one can take. Yeah, so we, we have about two minutes before the break. Um, do you want to talk about just quickly what some of those supplements might be? Sure. I, I mean, you know, in, in the market, I, I have a lot of my, my, a lot of my patients use an, a cocktail of vitamins called the focus factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I've read the ingredients. It's a cocktail of pretty, fairly decent vitamins. Uh, one can take those individually, but it uh, certainly, you know, that's one, one thing. People have seen other, you know, products advertised. Um, but, I mean, I would say just, you know, vitamin D. Is, is an excellent, uh, you know, is, is an excellent opportunity because believe me, even in California and, and perhaps Arizona, all these sunshine states, people are low on vitamin D. So you cannot, we cannot emphasize enough of our need for vitamin D. So that would be good. B, B vitamins tend to be good for cognition. Folic acid and B12 tend to be, uh, you know, in, in fact, whenever you go to a doctor complaining of memory loss, one of the first things they will check is your vitamin B12 count mm. in your blood and folic acid count. Those are almost standard to check. Um, and, and it's important that we supplement them, especially if you don't eat meats, uh, you know, meats or, or beef, for example, but then, and, or if you don't eat yogurt and you're purely vegetarian, then you need to supplement vitamin B's, B12 specifically. So those are some, some, of, the, some of the notions on that. Uh, I, um, I um, have a protein shake just about every morning and I add cinnamon to the protein shake because I have, uh, my understanding is that um, cinnamon helps you focus. It helps your attention. Is that uh, true? I, I mean, you know, I, I actually don't know the answer to that exactly. It's true, but cinnamon has many benefits, as you know. Consider one, you know, in in the in number of superfood categories. A lot of the function, a lot of these, uh, is an antioxidant function. Uh, whether black seed, for example, black seed oil uh, tablets. Um, in, in fact, I, I was telling folks, because we had this whole debate on hydroxychloroquine, right, uh, for COVID. And we, we have papers that I reviewed that black seed oil's mechanism at a cell level works exactly like hydroxychloroquine. Oh, so for, for all the people that were worried about their doctors not going to write it for them and President Trump was saying, okay, well, you know, everybody needs to take it or I'm taking it. I just said, Look, listen, don't worry. Just go get the black seed oil. You'll be fine. Psychologically satisfies you. It'll be in great hands, plus all of its other benefits. So, but those, I think, generally, you know, people are pretty good at researching some of these superfoods, you know, that, uh, that are helpful. Well, I think we're, we're uh, just about ready for a break. So we'll return to Senior Straight Talk in a few minutes to continue this wonderful conversation with uh, Dr. Kazi. So we'll be right back. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. In the best of times, nursing home residents suffer from isolation and loneliness. Because of COVID-19, senior residents are missing out on connecting with family and friends. You can change this. Video chats help them stay connected with loved ones. You can help to change a nursing home resident's life. Please help us purchase mobile devices so they can stay connected. 
because senior connections matter. Click the banner on the show page or visit GoFundMe.com now and search for Senior Connections Matter. Connecting seniors through technology to make your donation. Rubina Chaudhry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of Olive Community Services, a 501c3 providing support services to seniors, families, and the community. Olive's Live, Learn, and Thrive programs engage seniors physically, mentally, and socially. Rubina's passion for seniors stems from her experiences as an only child, living miles away from her aging parents who are over 90 years of age. She understands the issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org for further information. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the hosts at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk. Our guest today is uh, Dr. Faisal Kazi from Fullerton, California. Dr. Kazi, I, Dr. Kazi, and I live in the same town. And since we booked this interview with him, I learned that he is also running for our city council. And as it turns out, my house is in his district, and I will definitely be voting for him and, uh, <laughs> and uh, supporting him. And I already have him signed by my, by my mailbox. And, uh, you know, so that's one part of it. But I think the other part is that I really am... I'm proud of you to to pursue community service. And we need people that have good heart and good head to, to come and serve the community. So coming back to brain health, that is a big area of concern for me. As we talked in the last episode, my parents both developed some signs in their high 80s and around the 90-year, you know, old time frame and I want to make sure that I stay you know alert and aware and uh, and of course we all have those incidents instances when you go to the fridge and you forgot what you went for but I, I don't want it to get any further what can I do what advice will you give me uh, yeah, sure, but you know those are called. We used to call them senile moments, but we don't use that term anymore. <laughs> yes, uh, that's true. That's uh, or, true. Or, or a senior moment, but, senior but moment. part, of, part that's, of that's forbidden kind of thing. It's a little part different. of. Uh, like a part of it is age, part of aging is our our men, our ability to multitask declines, mm. and that's not that's not to say that it's dementia or anything. It's just you know uh, we our, our our ability to. Uh, our attention mechanisms and multitasking does decline. So, uh, you know, so there is some burden of aging on the brain. So, but as far as prevention goes, right, I think uh, number one uh, thing that I would emphasize and keep reemphasizing is, is physical conditioning, meaning physical mm-hmm. fitness, uh, you know, basic exercise of the body. Walking is, walking is a great, um, uh, walking is great. And, and, and when it comes down to walking, we should talk about within our community, for example, um, facilities or roads and, and sidewalks that are not safe for our aging active adults because that's where you fall and you have injuries related to that. So we don't have a lot of that structure that's conducive for aging populations to grow and remain active. Uh, in, lo- in most, a lot of cities actually, we're not the only city, but it's something we don't discuss or talk about it a whole lot. Mm. But going back to, but that's, that's prevention in itself, right? I mean, in pre- mm-hmm. preventing injuries, uh, Phyllis, you mentioned your mom fell and had a broken hip. I mean, those systemic injuries, you know, also are related to or sign of a declining uh, brain condition. Mm. Uh, I mean, there is a, there's a cross-connection between the two. Um, so that, that spells um, a little bit more information on, on where things are headed. But I think, you know, I think some vitamins are really good, like I mentioned. I would also, for, I mean, I would highly recommend vitamin D uh, mm-hmm. for folks. Um, we, we had some specific research on other vitamins like vitamin E, even estrogen in women, and those haven't really panned out all that well. Some people still recommend taking uh, something like vitamin E, but research-wise, the connection is not very, benefit is not very strong. Uh, 
Um, but just general antioxidants in the body and body cleansing, uh, you know, body cleansing items are usually good. Uh, but part of physical exercise also helps reduce blood pressure, uh, reducing blood pressure um, and helping your sugar control. Because one thing we don't realize is that, you know, of course, uh, you know, there's insulin present in the brain as well. So there's insulin that's working in the brain, um, also helping modulate the sugar uh, sugar levels in the brain. Although, you know, brain consumption of brain neurons is the highest in the body. So technically, you know, uh, Sugar is good for the brain, right? So I mean, maybe rest for rest, bad for rest of the body, but it's good for the brain. Don't give me um, an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a product some years ago. Uh, the company made a product which was type of a protein shake. It was a higher protein content, uh, and one of its functions was that would you would take it like a protein shake, as you mentioned, uh, and one of its functions was to just help regulate insulin in the brain, mm. uh, and that was a very interesting mechanism. Uh, but it just tells you that your your bodily sugar intake and sugar, you know, regulation has an effect on one's, you know, me- memory and cognition, dementia risk down the road. There's some discussion going on in terms of that. So, and then, you know, in terms of brain building brain reserve, whether these brain exercises, such as logic exercises, or there are companies that have created softwares that are now available. One company actually got sued for over-advertising, it's, but it's been very widely advertised because uh, it's called Luminosity. Uh, yes, I've heard of that. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it has a product that's, a, you know, I, I think it's a decent product. I've had patients used it, have used it. But you don't necessarily have to go buy it. I mean, you can do anything. You can do reading, writing, they say it helps. Um, and also, like, like we mentioned, crosswords, puzzles, and anything that's logic. But you have to, I mean, the thing is that, you know, we don't want to get complacent as we age because we don't want, we need to challenge ourselves. Right. And, uh, and challenging ourselves is always good for the brain. Uh, uh, I, I, just, I, Alyssa, give me one second. Oh, yes, Does creating a non-profit organization for seniors keep your brain healthy? Well, yeah, so I would say because, because, you created it, because you created it, we will endorse it as a valuable activity. But it's, it's an endeavor. I, it's an endeavor. And I just want to share with you that, uh, uh, and we will invite you to Olive Community Services Live, Learn, Thrive program. But what you're sharing here is, is just so valuable for seniors. And we have an, a program within Olive, which is called Olive Fit and Fund. And that is basically aimed towards getting the community moving, especially getting the, the seniors moving. And the person who's leading it, I don't know, you might even know, is Dr. Sophia Ghani. Uh, we, she's uh, you know, very well-versed in holistic nutrition. Her PhD is in pharmacy. Uh, she's a professional trainer. She's leading that effort um, for, for Oliver's. So we're trying to do some of what you're saying. I was going to just add when you were talking about crossword puzzles and things of that nature, uh, and you were talking about logic that years ago I had heard people who would just um, like do multiplication tables in their head, keep, keep you, you know, because there's a logic to that, even though it becomes automatic and there's a memorization to it, but, um, you know, you know it's, it's logic. Um, yeah. So I, I, I've heard that as well. And there's something else I wanted to say, uh, which is if you're not physically strong, you're more apt to fall. Mm-hmm. You know, if your core isn't strong, if you're not exercising and keeping your legs strong. And the other thing I wanted to address is uh, you said about how, let's say, where you're living, it's not very conducive to, to walking, um, having paths for walking. And that's uh, I don't think it's just that that communities are looking at in, in creating like dementia-friendly communities or age-appropriate communities, but you see more and more communities, whether they have little bike paths or whatever, um, you know, to encourage people to to exercise, um, you know, physically uh, because it keeps you strong at whatever age. Well, ultimately, you have you will have a sizable. You know, we talk about baby boomers. Um, you know, and, and living longer, um, having more chronic conditions, there's clearly going to be a social cost to the prevalence of, 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 of dementia in that population. And some things we have to think about, and which is why I'm glad you're running a nonprofit uh, on, that's, that advocates for, for elderly. And we have to also start advocating a lot in terms of safety, elderly safety. And one of the things we have to think about is, you know, these sort of 
uh, what's aging going to be like for for growing older growing population that's growing old older and what kind of ideas can we conceive such as uh, for example age, uh, villages that are very conducive to both walking and and you know having the requisite necessary shopping where things are accessible not you know like do you want Albertsons or Ralphs which is you know a few thousand acres you know or, or a few hundred acres big to go around and shop you know you, you may you th those things get difficult mm -hmm. after a while because you have folks that are on a walker on on or on, on sort of you know essentially wheelchairs trying to shop so how do you make things uh, convenient comfortable and easy so that's basically those active adults who want to still continue to live independent but don't, do not necessarily want to be in an independent living, assisted living sort of programs or nursing home sort of a program, but they, they do want to downsize and retire. Uh, so that's something we have to think about. It just goes into some of the things I discussed in my campaign as far as our city planning goes. But also uh, also think about the, um, you know, what they call uh, memory care units within nursing homes. So, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the memory care units here in California, for example, really only accept people elderly that are able to ambulate, meaning they, they sufficiently walk on their own uh, and sort of independent in, in that respect. And if they're fully, if they're very much dependent and are going to require a lot of supervision, then they don't accept them in the memory care units. So that definition has to evolve a little bit. Um, uh, and there's not enough memory care units to begin with. There's right. very few people that get it. So it's state funding. Um, hopefully one day we have, you know, long-term care insurances. It's an idea for advocacy to work with long-term care insurance programs, big companies like New York Life or what have you, to start considering these memory care centers as, as long-term, you know, living facilities uh, to be included in, in what the insurances that people are buying. So there's, there's an advocacy level, there's a social cost we need to think about, in my opinion, and also there's a planning that needs to be done at a city-by-city -city level that could go a long way. Uh, uh, the memory care units on assisted living in assisted living facilities are very different than the um, the accommodations that nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities make for people who have uh, cognitive impairment or advanced cognitive impairment. And now um, a lot of assisted living communities do have you know memory um, memory care units. However, they are only allowed to provide a certain level of skilled care. So when the person, uh, when their dementia advances and their decline physically advances and they need more skilled care, that's when they um, more than likely are going to move into a nursing home situation. And then I don't think at that juncture, uh, depends on the facility, if, they, if their memory care unit, because some skilled nursing facilities do have a memory care unit, I don't know if it's really set up um, the way we would envision, let's say, one uh, that's less restrictive, because they're, they're not looking at the person that my experience has been as a person at that point. Um, they're looking at them through the, the prism of the diagnosis and, and where they are uh, in terms of their decline. And so I think th there has to be a whole mind shift focus, uh, mind, yeah. mindset shift. Right. I agree with that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you mentioned um, blood pressure um, contributing to um, strokes and things of that nature. Um, you know, are there other um, rates of incidence or occurrence by age or ethnicity that we see with stroke, just like they're talking about people with underlying conditions being more susceptible to, let's say, something like the coronavirus? Are there certain underlying conditions and certain um, ethnicity, ethnicities that are more predisposed to, let's say, things like stroke? Yeah, I mean, for for sure. I mean, you know, you know, if we the the, the uh, southern states we call we call the stroke belt uh, because if you if you're working, you know, in in the stroke units there, you'll see you'll see thirty some year olds coming in with strokes. And wow. I don't know if it's a diet. I don't know if ribs are really famous over there, but you know, <laughs> it's something. I can tell you what the diets are like down there, right? <laughs> exactly. So part of that, part of it is that you know there's sec sec sections of the country that are very high, high prevalence of stroke. Hypertension is, by the way, it's considered the number one most modifiable risk factor for strokes. So high blood pressure is a key fault line for us uh, to manage. And then you have, you know, you, you'll see, in, you know, black Americans, 
there's an extremely high prevalence of hypertension and early age hypertension and, and strokes. Uh, so that's one very high risk group in general. Um, so you'll, 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 like for example, you know, Native Americans and diabetes, it's very extremely high risk and prevalence. So, and both diabetes and hypertension are your top two contenders for <clears throat> stroke risks. Um, and the, then, then on top of that, you know, just cholesterol, hyper, hyperlipidemia or high cholesterol. Um, and that runs fairly wild, you know, why, you know across uh, all spectrums and that needs to be managed, which is why you'll see that after uh, anybody who's had a stroke, um, afterwards, they, it's, it's almost mandatory to put people on an anti-cholesterol medication, mm-hmm. not just for its benefits on the cholesterol itself, but also in, in its benefits, uh, and its benefit to prevent a stroke in the future. Um, go ahead. Now, I was going to say, um, uh, it depends on the reason for the stroke, but a lot of people who have had strokes are also on blood thinners. Is that correct? Well, so a lot of people on to, to get onto blood thinners after a stroke, and the right. kind of stroke we're talking about is a stroke that actually results from a blockage or what we call clot, clot formation. Most of the stroke is from tissue damage that happens when the clot gets big enough or blocks the blood flow or comes from some other location like the heart and blocks a vessel, then there's no oxygenation to that tissue. And that tissue dies off fairly quickly, and then that's called a stroke. That's how we use it. The term, but also in in our lexicon in neurology and neurosciences, there's another type of stroke which is what we call hemorrhagic stroke. It's less that's less of the you know that's less prevalent uh, in terms of between the two of them compared to the, compared to the ischemic stroke or the um, tissue damage related stroke from oxygenation issue directly. The the, the hemorrhagic stroke or bleeding stroke um, can also be can it's it's um. It can be related to directly a surge in hypertension, meaning surge in blood pressure. So you have people who come in and all of a sudden say they didn't take their medications for a week, mm-hmm. high blood pressure medication for a week. And that's enough time, even days, sometimes a matter of a handful of days, the blood pressure surge is really, really high. And then the blood vessels actually rupture and bleed in the brain. And mm-hmm. we see quite a bit of that. And, and bleeding in the brain is, 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 you know, tends to have a much worse prognosis. It depends on the size and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But bleeding in the brain is never a good thing. So, you know, it's just a, has a higher mortality rate. Um, so, and then that's different than somebody who's younger and might have blood in the brain from aneurysm in rupture or something like that, because those things can have genetics, genetic factors. Um, but, the, the, you know, those aneurysmal ruptures are very, very, um, just very tough. You know, my own aunt uh, died of that at, at a very young age. So those things are, those are very, those are very devastating blows. Um, but in general, you know, same thing. You have to to prevent both ischemic stroke, ischemic stroke or hypertensive hemorrhage. Uh, you have to first and foremost control blood pressure. Blood pressure being the the number one modifiable risk factor for all of these conditions. Now, when you said that, it reminded me when I was a very little girl. I remember my grandmother on my father's side um, had an aneurysm. She she died, I think, when I was five or seven, maybe. But I do remember that, um, you know, there a lot of, yeah, it's, it's, these things are not just now that people, you know, are experiencing these things. These things have, have been around for a long time. They're part of the human condition, I would say, but we have, there's more research behind it now, more preventative medicine, more, um, you know, you know, lifestyle changes that we can make to address some of those issues. And we, and we have better technology, but, you know, we can always argue that, you know, our people, are the, are the prevalence just higher now compared to maybe even 50 years ago, including by the cancer prevalence. We can talk about changing our habits, changing our diets, changing our culture, you know, environment. I mean, people maybe, people used to walk more back then just because they had to, mm-hmm. you know. Right. I mean, people generally, I was, I was visiting, um, I was visiting, I was in Ireland, and they were telling me how they used to make their own bread, the, the Dutch type of bread, which was all wheat. Um, and, and really, I enjoyed, you know, those kind of, the, the diets there. I mean, the, the, it was very interesting because it, was, it wasn't processed food as much. Um, but a lot of that is on steroids now, and, and, and it's changing not just, just changing also traditional communities over in Europe and Middle East and other places, you know, not just, um, not just here. So, 
But, you know, I'm going to say that when, uh, of course, I haven't been in California for a while now, unfortunately, because of the whole COVID situation. But whenever I go to California, and not just Rubina's house, <laughs> because my son lives in California, but whenever I go to California and come back east, I can taste the difference in the food. The food uh, tastes cleaner there, it tastes fresher there, um, and, and it's, it, feels, it tastes lighter. Um, always a huge difference uh, when I come back east. So, you know, that's an, an issue in other parts of the country, too, where there's more farmland, where food is fresher and, and grown and available, you know, farm-to-table kind of thing. And, and you may, if you travel abroad, you know, you just go south to Mexico or other places in smaller towns in, you know, in, in Europe. Um, at least you'll see the difference. I mean, you could t- people, people come back and say, yeah, we could taste the difference, you know. Right. I mean, so there's something to be said about, you know, our, 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 our whole, the change in our attitudes, um, you know, are just a lot of it, disease is driven by that um, because we don't have the same opportunities we did before and, and, same, and we don't have the same motivation as, as, as the community before. So. You know, talking about diet, I've seen a difference in, during these times of COVID. I've lost eight pounds <laughs> by and I'm exercising, I'm walking, and you know what's the variable? I'm not going out to business lunches. Yeah, I, I and I've basically cut out outside food, and it's home cooked and home food, and there is and you're feeling healthier as well. So diet is definitely a big variable in uh, in, well, in everything. I- on the other hand, you're maybe an exception to the rule because people are generally complaining about gaining weight. That's right. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Too. You know something? I think I got her eight pounds. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, well, so don't say I never gave you anything, okay? <laughs> well, it's interesting, though. If you really see, like, I've never seen as many people jogging outside or, you know, cycling outside. I mean, like, where was everybody? We were indoors in the gyms. Right. Now that gyms, you know, pe- bike sales off the roof. I want my local, you know, bike shop here has no inventory left uh, of, of bikes. So it's very interesting, you know, how this changes, we adapted to it so so rapidly. But also, you know, look, but then, you know, there's other social issues come with that. Just today I was listening that, you know, one in 10 couples are now, uh, indicating or, or mentioning that they're having into, getting into arguments. There's oh, not enough alone time, alone time amongst <laughs> couples. So you, you know, so there's it's a give and take. Right, <laughs> it's it's really interesting time. It's it's really interesting time because we, my husband Riaz and I, we have our own offices. We're fortunate to have our own offices within the house, and we walk to the kitchen. It's like one is in the right lane, one is in the other lane. <laughs> You go for your breaks and you and you come back. And Dr. Kazi, I have a a, a question for you. Uh, my next question is: Phyllis and I are trying to do our best to raise awareness to the need of seniors uh, in in all different areas. What advice would you give give us? Well, I, I think you know the best advice I can give you is, of course, keep the education going. But uh, but uh, let's be part of advocacy because right. a lot of changes have to be made at a, at a policy level. Uh, you know, um, California, for example, at the governor's behest, has is working on creating a master plan for aging. It's, it runs through California Commission on Aging, mm-hmm. which is an incredible group of people. Uh, great documents, papers come out of that. So wow. I think we need to be advocates. You know, uh, for for that, and then and then a lot of the funding, as you know, is going to be driven. Federally, so whether you're in Connecticut or uh, you're in Southern California, I think the uh, the goals are the same. Um, I think one thing we have to keep in mind is just you know health insurance. I know Medicare is very precious, uh, precious to uh, to folks, uh, especially as you as you age or your needs and uh, demands. I mean, no, I can I cannot imagine any insurance company really covering the kind of services Medicare is able to cover oh, for the elderly population. So I mean, you know, those, in in our in our political life, those things are threatened, you know, and and we need to be really aware that you know not only we need to be advocates for people we're educating at the same time because mm-hmm. that's part of comprehensive empowerment. So just you know, put that political hat on because I'm running for office. That's one of the reasons I'm running. Um, but I encourage everybody in the nonprofit world to have that compass uh, as well. But- 
And I will share with you that Phyllis is very active and I believe she's mm -hmm. being considered for or is on a task force at a national level. So we're hoping that with, uh, with our work and with exposure, she will have an opportunity to, uh, to be of service more. Uh, she has written two books on, the, on that uh, topic. The second one, not the first one, the second one was uh, Overdue Elder Care in quality America. Care, quality, oh, care quality Care for Our Elders in America. That's when I met her. Right, I was exactly. at a conference where she was attendee and I was a speaker. Uh, in a quality care for our elder citizens. And she's uh, written an ebook recently on uh, resilience. And I just actually finished writing my third book, which should be uh, published hopefully in about six or seven weeks. And um, it's at the publisher for editing, and it's called Dignity and Respect. I'll have to get your Amazon links. And, 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 and you know, and we have a so. real uh, you know, advocate here, and right. uh, I'm Appreciate really that. grateful to meet her. And she has come, traveled to California for several of our Olive Community Services events. She's facilitated um, a panel. Yes on um, intergenerational Oh issues. yeah, that was terrific. That was last year. That right? was last year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, really, she's really an excellent supporter and friend of uh, Olive Community Services. Thank you, that's and, great. That's amazing and, and I'm learning so much from just listening to her. But, but I have learned similar, and this is, you know, we didn't plan this. Uh, I didn't plan for Avina to say this, and uh, so this was not planned at all. But I have learned a lot. Um, I'm a big advocate also for uh, a, a culturally appropriate services for the mm -hmm. diverse population, especially those, you know, I see in nursing homes, and then I see yeah. the diverse caregivers, and how many times there's mm -hmm. a mismatch there. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, it goes yeah. down a very unfortunate rabbit hole sometimes and ends up with uh, antipsychotic drugging. But I learned a lot from Rubina. And um, uh, the last time I was, uh, I think it was, I was in California, and then I came east, and I was uh, doing some coverage work in a nursing home, and I met a gentleman. Remember this, Rubina? Yes, I remember. I, Please share it. Yeah. I, I, see, I see what he looked like, and he, they were telling me he wasn't eating and all kinds of things, and uh, so they wanted me to go see him to see if there was a problem with his swallowing. They always, you know, kind of cover themselves that way, and sometimes it's an issue. But I took one look at him and saw his name, and um, asked him if he was a Muslim. It like dawned on me, no wonder he wasn't eating, right? Because mm -hmm. he wasn't going to eat those things if those were his, if he had dietary restrictions. And mm -hmm. I said to him, Salam Aleichem, and he was so thrilled. He mm -hmm. beamed from ear to ear. I never would have thought of saying that before, even though certainly I'm aware of, you know, the Muslim faith and, and all of that. And um, sure enough, it had to do with the fact that uh, he didn't eat certain foods and nobody thought to ask him that question. And so we resolved that issue. So we've learned from each other for sure. Yeah, thank you, that, that's very crucial. Um, I mean, this is something we have to do at a state level in yes. terms of you know, culturally sensitive opportunities. And there, you know, it's an, it's an area of, of a very, you know, it's a big deficit, Absolutely. area of big deficit. And, and the state's decline on funding opportunities, it's uh, just the uh, gulf in that area is going to grow. And, and another experience, uh, Faisal, that, that brings Phyllis and me together is because my mom, you know, and dad have gone through this in the last seven years. Since their 85th birthday, all this started happening. And my mom was fortunate enough to go to a facility in Vancouver, BC, actually in Surrey, BC, that is set up by the South Asian community. Mm -hmm. It's called PICS, and it's um, all religious and cultural backgrounds, but with that South Asian influence. And it's been a wonderful facility. They have, uh, you know, staff that speak all the different languages. They have all different functions for, for different people. Uh, and that, that's been a blessing. And through that, actually, we have met our 
third partner in this uh, effort is the person who has been the director of care who helped develop it. So that's how I think the the pieces are are coming together. And uh, I know Universe has a big plan for our efforts, and it'll it'll come it'll come true. Absolutely. So I don't think we have any more time. So um, okay. I mean, I think we could go on for another half hour, but I I don't think we have time for that. So. Uh, you know, Dr. Kazi, thank you so much for generously sharing your time with us on Senior Straight Talk and for this enlightening conversation and valuable information. There's so much to cover. Uh, we may have to have you come back at a future date, uh, depending on your political standing. <laughs> good luck in your uh, good luck in your endeavors. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not uh, registered out there, so I can't vote for you. But I would. Uh, you have my support. So okay. um, I appreciate the endorsement. Thank you. <laughs> well, you'll be invited regardless of your political standing. Okay, oh, okay. <laughs> that's not a condition. <laughs> oh, okay, great. So I guess I'll just say to our listeners and viewers uh, to join us on our next episode of Senior Straight Talk, where we'll have more informative conversations. Please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. And until next time, stay safe. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your hosts, Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms.